0: As you know, we are beginning the book of Ephesians. I enter this with much fear and trembling. Um, I wouldn't want to say that we will get through this book at this point of time. I pray that the Lord would give us the grace and give me the grace to expound this book. As you know, we go through verse by verse here in this church. And so we will begin here today with Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 2. So if you are here for the very first time, hang in there. And welcome back again next week as we go through the book. And I pray and uh, urge you to be here with us uh, so you can be a part of this study as we labor through the book of Ephesians. So as we look into the book of Ephesians, Paul looks at the book of Ephesians from the vantage point of the heavenly places. He takes a panoramic view of the wondrous, glorious work of God in Christ Jesus. Martin Lloyd Jones, a famous commentator, calls the book of Ephesians as the purest expression of the gospel. The most sublime and majestic expression, he says. John Stott. Another English commentator, he calls Ephesians as the gospel of the church. He states, nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship. This was John Calvin's favorite epistle. William Barclay, who was another commentator, he writes, Ephesians is the queen of the epistles. Another writer called it the crown of Paul's writing. This is a church over which the Apostle Paul had had great joy when he wrote this letter. But when our Lord Jesus Christ wrote a letter to this church about 40 years later, and we read about that in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, we read that the Ephesians' passion and fervor for the Lord Jesus Christ had, had become cold. And they had forsaken their love for Christ. A rather sad story. That a church that could have the ministry of of the apostles. the, The apostle Paul himself. The apostle John. And 40 years later. Should leave its first love. Why is the study of the book of Ephesians so important? To begin this book reveals the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church was first of all revealed to the Apostle Paul. We read about this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. And if you turn a page down, you will read how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul is stating here that this mystery which he is about to reveal was not made known to the Old Testament saints. It was hidden from them. It was not revealed in other ages. But it is now being revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. So what is this mystery? And we read about that in verse 6. And that this is the mystery. That he raised us up. I'm sorry. And, and this is the mystery. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. A hidden secret is now being made known through Paul to the New Testament people that there would be a body called a church and it would incorporate the Jews and the Gentiles. It wasn't known until then. This is being revealed through Paul, for the very first time. So here's the benefit of studying the book of Ephesians. You begin to understand the mystery of the church. You begin to understand that the church is a body, and that the body consists of different parts. And Christ is the head of the body, who completes it. There's another reason why the book of Ephesians is important. You begin to understand that this book, as you read through chapters 1 through 5, which 1 through 6, it'll be good for us to go home and and take it upon us every day to read chapters 1 through 6, which I have started doing as I'm preaching through the book. It takes about 10, 12 minutes to read through that. And I tell you, you will memorize it by the end of it. It's a great tool to read through it as you come to church on Sunday morning. And so as you, as you read through the book, you'll realize that this book is called as a spiritual bank of the Christian believer. It's about your riches in Christ Jesus. It's a book that tells us about the resources that we have in Christ. And it has been called by some as the treasure house of the believer. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 it speaks of the riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3:16 speaks of the riches of his glory. As one commentator writes, we have enough resources in heaven to cover all our past debts, our present liabilities, And all our future needs. We have the fullness of God. In chapter 3 verse 19. We have the fullness of Christ. In chapter 4 verse 13. And we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5 verse 18. And to top it off. These riches are all guaranteed. By none other than God. In Christ Jesus. As someone said as secure as Christ is in the plan and love of God so secure are our riches and this is what peter reminds us in 1 peter chapter 1 verse 4 to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you all of this is ours why because we are joined heirs with christ And because we are part of the church, the body of Christ. And without Christ, we would be destitute. Without Christ, we would be in spiritual poverty. And without Christ, we will be nothing. And as we see, as we read through the book of Ephesians, we're made to realize that as a body, we can avail of these resources, these riches, and use them for God's glory. Now let me give you an outline to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians can be divided into two sections. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 speak of the doctrines, our riches in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 talks about our duty, our responsibilities in Christ. We can also call chapters 1, to 3 as the indicators or who we are in Christ, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 as the imperatives, that is because of who we are in Christ, what we ought to be doing. Let us quickly scan through the book of Ephesians. And that wouldn't take a lot of time there. Will, we will anyway be going into this depth in, in, in depth. But today, just for the sake of understanding, let's take a, a 30,000 feet View of the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see God's wisdom, His glory, and His power being displayed in His eternal purpose for the church. We see how He appointed His people to be part of the church even before the foundation of the world, all for the praise of His glory. In verses 15, Through 23, Paul prays that God would open our minds to understand the comprehensible, incomprehensible riches that God has given us as members of the body of Christ, as Christ is the head of the church. Coming into chapter 2, Paul tells us what we were before we met Christ and what Christ has done for us by his grace. He raised us up from the dead and he seated us in the heavenly places. He wants the Gentiles to know that formerly they were completely alienated from God's covenant promises. But now they have been brought near in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul reveals to the Gentiles that he's a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. And, and, and before the Gentiles begin to doubt God's sovereign control over Paul's life and over Paul's trials, Paul reveals to them the mystery that is there, that has been hidden from the past or in the Old Testament and has now been made known to the world that the Gentiles are now part of the church of fellow heirs and members of the body of Christ. Thus, Paul was stating that the tribulations on behalf of the Gentiles were for their glory. And then Paul breaks into praise in verses 14 through 22 of chapter 3, that they may understand the unfathomable love of God and that they may be filled to the fullness of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, 5 and 6, we see the comprehending, that we see how comprehending how all of God's goodness should cause us to live in practical godliness in this world. We see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul talking about the worthy walk of, the, of those in the body of Christ. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, we see the purposeful walk of the one new man. And that we should no longer walk as the Gentile's. In chapter 5 verses 1 through 14, we see that we ought to be walking as children of the light in this dark world. And in chapter 5 verses 15 through chapter 6 verse 9, we see that we ought to be walking with wisdom as it affects our family and our workplace. And then in chapter 6 verse 10 all the way through verse 20, we have to stand against the forces of evil by putting on the full armor of God. Having seen an overview of the book of Ephesians, let us now understand the geographical and cultural background of the book of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was originally a Greek colony. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia and a busy commercial port. It had a large port and therefore the city of Ephesus was a chief communication link between Rome and the East. Ephesus was known for the temple of Diana or Artemis. It had a structure which was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. The idol of Artemis measured 425 feet by 220 feet by 60 feet. And this idol was worshipped immorally by temple prostitutes. As a result of this, what happened was in the city of Ephesus, a large number of people gathered together because they made a lot of money by selling the shrine of Artemis. Merchants flocked to it. It was a melting pot of cultures. Ephesus was also the center of the occult practices. And so when the gospel came into Ephesus, many of the Ephesians became Christians. And their lives were transformed. When their lives were transformed, and you'll read all about this in Acts chapter 19, they burned their occult books. In Acts chapter 19, as you read, you find that it was valued at about 50,000 pieces of silver or 50,000 days of wages. This is what happens when one comes to Christ. You break relationship with the past. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 reads, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away, and behold, the new has come. Have you come to Christ? And if you have come to Christ, have you broken your things with the past? A relationship with the past? With the past things that you used to do? Have you repented of your sins? We read further in verses 23 through 41 of Acts chapter 19. And uh, I would like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19 to help us understand the context a little more. Acts chapter 19 verses 23 to 41. You realize that there was a great riot that broke out as a result of... Burning all the occult books. As a result, the sale of the shrines went down. The merchants lost their revenue. The crowd got furious. And what they did was they dragged Gaius and Aristarchus, who were companions of Paul, into the theater. And we read about that in verse 29. It says the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And when Paul about heard about this, you read further down, that he wanted to rush into the theater, and, and the disciples would not let him in. This theater that they talked about was so huge, an open-air theater, which could hold about 25,000 Spectators. This is the background to the city of Ephesus. Now, the question arises how and when was this church of Ephesus founded? You remember, after Paul's conversion, Paul spent a few years in the Arabian desert. Then he went to pastor a church in Antioch, and it was at Antioch that the Lord spoke to the leaders of the church telling them to separate three people, Luke, Barnabas, and Saul, for the work of the ministry. And when we hear the word Saul, it's the word Paul. Paul is his new name after conversion. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And in Acts chapter 13, as you turn there, you see the story as to how the elders fasted and prayed. It says in verse 1, there was a church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, and all of them, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And this is where Paul begins his first missionary journey. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. And as you read there, Paul and Barnabas returned from their first missionary journey. And verse 26 reads, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And this is their return from the first missionary journey. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that the God had done for them, and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now, if you go further down into chapter 15, into verse 36. We read, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So here is the start of the second missionary journey. And verse 37 reads, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the Lord to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Here's the second missionary journey. In chapter 16, Paul goes to Derby, And that's where they find Timothy. And it says in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance of decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So this is the second missionary journey where Paul goes with Timothy and Silas. Now if you come down further, go further to Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18, verse 19, you come to a point where it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with them Priscilla and Aquila. At cancrea he cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Here is Paul returning to Ephesus or actually going to Ephesus in a second missionary journey leaves Priscilla and Aquila there and then he stays there for a longer period and then that's about two months he takes leave and he says in verse 21 I will return to you if God wills and he sets sail from Ephesus. Now two years later Paul returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And this happens in chapter 19. It says in chapter 19, verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. And it says in verse 8, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. And further on, you find that in verse 10 of chapter 19, he continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the story of the founding of the church of Ephesus. It founded. It started with Aculas and Priscilla, Achilles and Priscilla in Ephesus, and when Paul joins them two years later, he begins ministering there for about two years. And after Paul ministered in Ephesus for about two years, in Acts chapter nineteen, you find Timothy becoming their pastor for about a year and a half. So this is the story of the of the book of Ephesus, the founding of the book of Ephesus of the church of Ephesus. And now, who was the author? Of the book of Ephesians. And to whom was this letter written? Well, Paul was the author of this letter. He wrote this letter and three other letters while he was a prisoner in Rome. These are called the prison epistles Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. These letters were written by Paul around AD 60 through 62 and delivered by Tacitus. And it has been about 10 years since Paul has last visited the church at Ephesus. Now to whom did Paul write this letter? Was his letter written specifically to the Ephesian church? The argument against this seems to be a little bit off here with many scholars looking at some of the ancient manuscripts. As they were looking at some of the ancient manuscripts and they looked at the verse of chapter 1, and would you turn with me to chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. As they were reading some of the manuscripts, they found out that the phrase, to the saints who are, and then there is a blank, in Ephesus was missing in many of the ancient manuscripts. So it is possible that Paul had written this letter to the seven churches, That was there in Asia Minor, of which Ephesus was one of them. And a church may have added their name in that blank. And read that letter in their churches. Maybe this was the first letter that was received by the church at Ephesus. And from there, it must have circulated on to the other churches. Now, as we study chapter 1, let's dive right into the verses. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. And this is where we start, begin our study of the book of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a three-point outline for you. God is sovereign over our lives. Verse 1a. God is a sanctifier of our lives. Verse 1b. God is the source of peace for our lives. Verse 2. Let's read verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We see here in this verse that Paul says very clearly that God is sovereign. As we look at the verse, it begins with the phrase, with the word, Paul. His first name was Saul. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was named after the first king of Israel. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a great rabbi under the school of Gamaliel, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a devout anti-Christian leader, very entrenched in Hebrew religion of Judaism. He hated Christians with a passion, and he was zealous to wipe them out of existence. And he was on his way to Damascus. And it was at this point that the Lord took hold of his life and stopped him in his tracks. Saul was converted. And we read all about that in Acts chapter 9. As Saul was going to Damascus to seize Christians and bring them bound to Jerusalem, suddenly a light shone from heaven. He heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And verse 8 of chapter 9 goes on to read that Saul rose from the ground and his eyes were opened, but he could not see anything. And as we continue to read verse 17, Ananias Came to the house where Saul was staying and laid his hands on Saul, and immediately verse 18 reads that something like scales fell off his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he was soon baptized. Now, if you as you read the story in Acts chapter 9, there was nothing Saul could have done about his conversion. Saul did not have anything to do with this conversion. He was not seeking his own conversion. In fact, he hated anyone who was a Christian. And being an apostle of Christ would be the last thing on Paul's mind. But as you read here, it all happened by the sovereign will of God. And why do we say that? We know that Paul could not have had this dramatic conversion on his own. In fact, none of us would know Christ as our Lord and Savior. If we were responsible to initiate our own salvation. Why? Would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Verse 1. It reads. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of air. And the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And verse 3 says, we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And as you read Romans chapter 3, you find, in verse 10, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's no one who desires God. And as you read these verses, you find that there is no one on planet earth who was accidentally strolling around and finds God. Unless the sovereign God regenerates them. Because based on these verses, in our default condition, we are spiritually dead people. And as spiritually dead people, they have no desire for God. And we know that because spiritually dead people cannot respond. Dead people cannot respond. Cadavers don't respond. If cadavers move, you got to run for your life. And the Bible states that we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And in our dead condition, we don't seek after God. But here is where the miracle takes place. If you read further down in, Acts, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And all of this happens according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ according to the riches of his grace. God saved Saul, and it was by God's sovereign will. Now come to think about it, King Herod did not have this conversion. King Agrippa did not have this conversion. Pilate did not have this conversion. Was God unfair? No. Saul was just like any other pagan, God-hating Jew in the Bible. But according to God's sovereign will, God did his work in Saul's life. Saul was converted, and now he became Paul. This only goes on to prove John chapter 1, verse 13, which reads, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is sovereign over our salvation. Now, please follow with me further in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle. That means he's not just any random person with some random opinions. He was an apostle appointed by the Lord to be a recipient and writer of New Testament revelation. He's one of the 13, capital A, apostles. You know that there were 12 apostles. And then Judas Iscariot joined in. I mean, sorry, after Judas Iscariot, Matthias joined in. And after that, Paul is now one of them. And so there were 13. And we know that Paul was well qualified. To be one of the capital A apostles. We read about this in in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 1. Where it reads, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are are, Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Here Paul is claiming to be an appointed messenger. And so when Paul says that he's an apostle. He was not just boasting. Or elevating himself above others. But he was establishing his undeserved, divinely instituted authority to speak on God's behalf. So what Saul says, I mean what Paul says, or what Paul speaks, he speaks with divine authority. I was once speaking to a person about some commands that are found in the Pauline epistles. And he said, looking at me, he said, Well, I don't take everything that Paul writes seriously. I only follow the words of Jesus. I've heard this argument multiple times. And this is exactly why Paul affirms his apostleship and lets the reader know that they were under divine authority as they were listening to Paul. The word word of God is not a buffet system where you go and you pick and choose what you want, and you pick and choose what authors you want to listen or read or believe. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scriptures breathed by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I did a study of the, the word all in the Greek, and it means all. All scriptures, which includes everything, all epistles. The 66 books of the Bible. It was all divinely ordained and authorized. Paul continues in verse 1. He says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul did not become an apostle of his own sweet will. He did not seek his apostleship. Nor was he appointed by the church to be an apostle. He did not imagine or devise the plan to be an apostle. He did not wake up one morning and say, I had a vision. God wants me to be an apostle. Now, Paul was appointed by God to be an apostle. And he was sent out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The sovereign God chose him. It was God who called him. So Paul could say he was an apostle by the will of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see this Paul saying it very explicitly in Galatians chapter one verse fifteen. It says, "But when he had, sorry, when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal a son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles." Our sovereign God had called Paul and appointed him to be an apostle according to his own sovereign will. And we see the emphasis in verse 1 on the sovereignty of God. In the same way that God saved Paul and Paul was called to be an apostle, it is God who chooses us to be a believer. It is God who predestines us and we'll study about this in the next section. And may I even add here, if you're aspiring to the task of the ministry, maybe you want to be a pastor, or maybe you want to be an elder. Let me add here that it is great to have that desire. But keep in mind that it is God's sovereign will for you to be one. He will put you or appoint you to be a pastor or an elder. And others will affirm your calling to the ministry. And that's what we see here. Paul saying he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. As we study through Ephesians, this is what I want you to keep in mind. A right understanding of the sovereignty of God. Now, we need to always begin with God. And if we do not begin with God, then we will become like any other man-centered church. With man-centered beliefs. There are churches out there that... That are Pelagian or Armenianism in their beliefs, and we call them man centered churches. Everything about them is man centered, including the philosophy of ministry. But it is the understanding of God's sovereignty that will allow us to understand everything else in the book of Ephesians. It is God who ordains everything, it is God who decides the end from the beginning, it's God who is on the throne and he is king, and as one commentator writes, the sovereignty of God is one of the cardinal doctrines without which we really do not understand our Christian faith. God is sovereign over our lives. Next, we come to the second truth and that is God is a sanctifier of our lives. Paul continues in verse 1b. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful In Christ Jesus. He begins the word. With saints. Saints are those who are. Cleansed by the blood of the lamb. And by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The word saint is translated as holy ones. God's people. Or God's holy people. Paul uses the term saints. Nine times in the book of Ephesians. It is a Greek word. Hagais, meaning set apart unto God in Christ. If you receive Christ as your personal Savior, if you have repented of your sins and if you have trusted in Christ, you've been saved and you are a saint. You are set apart unto God in Christ. Every Christian is a saint, because every Christian has been set apart and made holy through the perfect righteousness of Christ. That has been placed into his account. The question to us this morning is. Are we living our lives as if we are separated from the world. And set apart unto God. Or are we living our lives as if we are separated from God. And set apart to this world. We know in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were separated from God. And since then, everyone born into this world is dead in their sins and is separated from a holy God. There is a vast gulf between you and a holy God because of your sin. And the only way you can be made right with God is if you have been cleansed from your sins that separates you from a holy God. And when you put your trust in Christ and upon a sacrifice upon the cross for your sins... You are now separated from sin and set aside for God. You're brought near into the presence of God. You become a partaker of His divine nature. You're made a holy vessel. You're no longer a worldly person. You continually choose to abstain from worldly defilement. You're set apart or sanctified or made holy. A Christian is one who although he is in the world... Is not of the world, and they are continually abiding in Christ. They are living continually as saints. Now, you don't become a saint because some church decided to canonize you. I wonder how many saints that are canonized by the church would be in heaven in the first place. I mean, you become a saint not because of any human accomplishment. You become a saint. In lieu of what Christ has done for you on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he took our sins upon the cross. The penalty for breaking the law was placed upon him. The wrath of God was poured upon him. And we read in Second Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now when God looks down upon you, he sees Christ in you. Not your imperfect character, but the perfect, impeccable, absolute righteousness of Christ. Now you may say, well, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. I love the Lord with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, with all my heart. But I'm far from being a saint. Let me tell you. Being a saint doesn't mean you are sinless. That will never be true, in fact, in this, on this side of eternity. Being a saint means when Christ looks at you, he sees you as blameless. The saint refers to the believer standing in Christ rather than to the state of the believer. All believers are saints. We don't become saint one moment and ain't another moment. We are saints all the time. And as you see, we become saints because of what Christ has done for us. It is his doing. He's the one who initiates our salvation. He's the one who gives us the gift of faith. He's the one who justifies us. He's the one who sanctifies us. Let's continue reading Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. It says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word faithful means we have to exercise faith as a believer. It is by believing or having faith in Christ's work on the cross that we become saints. Now we do not become saints just because Christ died on the cross. If this was so then everyone in this world We'll just go to heaven. But this is not the case. We as individuals need to believe. Or put our faith. Personally upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we preach the gospel every Sunday. This is why we proclaim the gospel all the time. Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing. And hearing the gospel. And this is why as we proclaim Christ. People hear the gospel. They hear that Christ died for their sins. And. And when they believe the gospel, they put their trust upon the Lord. And if they don't, we urge them to obey the gospel, believe in the gospel, and put their faith in the gospel. But on the same token, we must know something. We must know that very clearly the Bible teaches that salvation is a gift from God. Would you please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And if you see what is the gift of God, we see that the antecedent to that is through faith. Faith is a gift of God. Would you please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It reads... For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And the Bible says here very clearly, it has been granted to you. Our faith is a gift from God, and without the saving faith, you and I cannot believe in the Lord. But what happens when God gives us a gift of faith? When he opens our eyes and and takes off the scales of our eyes. When he takes away our hard heart and gives us a soft heart. A heart of flesh. We need to cease from our efforts to save ourselves. And we need to put our trust in Christ. We need to have faith in Christ. We need to believe in Christ. We need to cast ourselves upon the saving work of Christ. And when we do this, we are placed in Christ. And we read here that the Ephesians came to faith in Christ. They became saints. They were in Christ. And now as a result of being in Christ, they remained faithful or loyal to Christ. Now think about the situation in Ephesus. These saints were living in real dark times. They were living in a time when their culture was surrounded by pervasive sin. Everything from politics, philosophy, their economy was intertwined by pervasive sin. Materialism pervaded their culture. Pornography was rampant. I mean, there were street signs in the city of Ephesus directing travelers to prostitutes. But through the power of the gospel, these saints could live about the sinful culture. To say their boat was in the water, but the water was not in the boat. They were able to prevail in that sinful culture by being in union with Christ Jesus, and they were able to persevere to the end. Are you faithful? Do you know whom you are believed? Are you keeping the faith? Are you holding on to the faith? Would God refer to you as faithful? Is it the habit of your life to be faithful? Now, we can only be faithful to Christ by virtue of the consecrating power of God. We can only remain faithful by virtue of being in union with Christ. Because He not only gives us the faith to believe in Him, He also sustains our faith. Thus, we see that God is a sanctifier of our lives. We are justified. We become saints And when we become saints, we also become faithful as he empowers our faith. And God continues to do his sanctifying work in us. So we continue to demonstrate our faithfulness to God. God is a sanctifier of our lives. We've seen that God is sovereign over our lives. We've seen that God is a sanctifier of our lives. Now let's come to the third truth that we see in verse 2 of chapter 1. That God is a source of peace for our lives. Verse 2 reads, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the beginning of faith. And peace is the end of our faith. Grace is the fountain and peace is the river. Grace is the root and peace is the fruit. It was customary in ancient times. To greet people in this way, when they met someone, grace to you. The word grace is charis in the Greek, which means the kindness of God towards undeserving people. If you elaborate on it, it means I wish to be gracious to you. More so, it was a reminder that you are who you are by the grace of God. It was a reminder to the speaker that I am who I am by the grace of God. God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. God on the cross was not holding our sins against us. Instead, he poured it upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is grace. This is God's unmerited favor. This is a favor that God pronounces on us. When we trust in Jesus Christ, it's wholly unheard, it's completely undeserved. Our salvation is by grace of God. The other half of the greeting says peace from God. It's a Greek, it's the Hebrew word shalom, and since we have grace from God, we have peace with God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 reads, That Jesus Christ himself is our peace. For he first made peace by his cross. And then he came and preached peace to the Jews and Gentiles. When we experience God's grace. God is no longer a judge. But becomes our Lord. But before experiencing grace. We ran away from God. We hid from God. We were at enmity with God. We hated God. We were alienated from God. We were opposed to God. We were striving against God with every breath of our being. We had no peace with God. And as a result, we were never at peace within ourselves. Without God, we become our own gods. Small g gods. We idolize ourselves. We become our own saviors. And when you see this in the world, we see that everyone's created a small God of themselves, of their own making. We think of ourselves as saviors. Saviors of our children. We are given to believe that our children would perish if it were not for us in being in control. We become saviors of our spouses. We become saviors of our church members. We become saviors in our relationship. And since we are all small g gods, we are all saviors, guess what's going to happen? There's war at each other, with each other. Why? Because as small g gods, we all are fighting for our dominance. And as God, we don't want anyone competing with us. We want to be heard, we want to be in power, we want to be autonomous. And as a result, we have these relational issues with people, with one another. There's discord and unhappiness between people. The reason we have not experienced the grace of God. Because we are all small g gods. But the moment we set aside our small g gods and we confess that. And we experience the grace of God. God becomes our capital as savior and our Lord. And after experiencing grace of God, we run towards God, we submit to Him. We are no longer autonomous beings, we submit to the sovereignty of God, we are no longer under God's condemnation, we have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we have peace with one another as well. Now think about this. Did you realize that the main reason you fight with one another is because you do not give grace to one another? Husbands fight with their wives because they do not impart grace to their wives. Wives fight with their husbands because they do not impart grace to their husbands. And there is no peace in marriage because there is no grace in marriage. But the moment you impart the grace of God to one another, there is peace. Because grace always leads to peace. And we see this peace as ours only because God initiated it. Look at verse 2 again of chapter 1. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The source of our peace is from God. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 reads, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, are you at peace with God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ was God, the sovereign king who died on the cross for your sins. Do you know him? Do you believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins? Do you believe that you're a sinner? And in desperate need of a savior. If you don't. Cry out to him. And when you cry out to him. He will have mercy on you. He will open your eyes. He will give you a new heart. And you he will put a new and living spirit within you. And you will have Peace. With God. And when you are at peace with God. You will have peace. Even in the midst of all trials and tribulations. You will have peace with one another. In your relationships. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6 through 7 reads. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you find that God is sovereign over our lives. God is the sanctifier of our lives. And God is the one who is the source of peace in our lives. And I pray that as we study the book of Ephesians, you will have the opportunity to behold your God. He is sovereign. He is a sanctifier. And He is a peacemaker. May God give you the grace to trust in the God of the Bible. Let's pray. Gracious Father... We come to you, Lord, weak as we are, knowing God, that we know these truths. But yet sometimes we live our lives as if we are far from it. And so, Lord, this morning we confess them. We pray that you would help us to live a life for your glory as we behold you. As we behold your attributes. As we behold your sovereignty. As we recognize that you are the sanctifier. That you are the enabler. As we recognize that you are the one who gives us peace. That we will rely on you. Upon you. For everything for our lives. And help us this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. And all God's children say. Amen.